Bibles, and I'm sure you do, turn to the book of Zephaniah. And we'll get another one of the minor prophets. We just have a few left after Zephaniah. And, and it's almost as if we're hearing this message over and over and over again about the need for repentance. And Lord, we hear the Lord calling out to, to, to this nation, to the northern kingdom, to the southern kingdom, to turn before it's too late. We come to the prophet Zephaniah, and he's the last one to speak before the Babylonian captivity, before the Babylonian armies come down and, and uh, they attack Israel, burn down Jerusalem, and take most of the Israelites off into captivity. And the name of the prophet is, is definitely appropriate to what he's going to preach. His name, obviously, uh, uh, the title of the book, the name of the prophet is Zephaniah. And basically, you know, you, you can, the word order is different, but basically what his name means is Yahweh hides. Yahweh hides himself. And that's appropriate because here was Zephaniah preaching this final time that, and it was still a few years before the Babylonians were going to come down, he was, uh, but he was preaching in the days of Josiah. But he preaches this final time that, it, that the southern kingdom, the, Israel, the northern kingdom had already been judged at this point. They had gone off in the Assyrian captivity, but the Babylonians were about to come down and conquer Assyria and conquer Judah, and uh, the Israelites were going to go into captivity, and their temple was going to be destroyed, and their city was, of Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And, and uh, uh, so Zephaniah comes to give them this final warning. And then after he speaks, God hides himself. And they don't hear anything until the judgment comes. You know, Amos, when he gave his warning about uh, the coming judgment, he said, you know, speaking on behalf of the Lord, he says, I sent you storms, I sent you blight, I sent you wars, I sent you pestilence, and yet you did not repent. And now it's as if the Lord's going to hide himself, and you're not going to hear from the Lord. I mean, one of the encouraging things to me about seeing things like these hurricanes hit the United States is that, that the Lord has, is still speaking to us. He hasn't hidden himself yet. And there's a message in these storms. There's a, net, a message in these uh, problems that the United States is having. And it's to wake up before things much worse than this happen. I mean, 9-11 was, was a big message to the United States. And it looks like the storm's going to be doing damage on 9-11. And so, who knows? Maybe God is going to turn it. Hopefully he will. But, but uh, there's more stuff to come. And, and, and again, it's a good, way because, a good thing because in the sense that God is still speaking to us. But there will come a point where God will be not finished with the nation, but he'll say, I, speaking to you doesn't do any good. And, and, and so now he hides himself. And whenever God hides himself, who rises up? Satan rises up, and, and uh, he's allowed to wreak havoc in the land and, and uh, at the, and by, uh, within the permissive will of God. And... And that's exactly what was about to happen to the, to the Israelites. And so uh, they should have known. Because you go all the way back to when they, a few days before they crossed the promised land, Moses prophesied of this, 
uh, captivity way back then. And Moses told them that uh, if they forsook the Lord and they turned to idols, uh, that uh, the Lord would forsake them. And he would hide, and Moses uses those words, he will hide himself from you and you'll be on your own and you'll be in serious trouble. And that's exactly the, what we're seeing now is this fulfillment of, of uh, what Moses had prophesied before they even went into the promised land and occupied that land. He prophesied one day you're going to lose it. And the reason you're going to lose it is because of your idolatry. You're going to forsake God. And I see a strong parallel between what, happened to Israel and what's happening to the United States now as we do everything we can to move God out of our society. And then we open up to these other things. Uh, going, let's go to Zephaniah and let's look at this first verse here. He says, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah from the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah. Now you should recognize some of these names. Uh, these are some, these are some you get, especially when you get to Hezekiah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, uh, king of Judah. So here was Zephaniah, who was a great-grandson of Hezekiah. He was a cousin to the king at that time, Josiah. So he was more than likely a pretty important man in the southern kingdom, in, in Israel. And so uh, when he spoke, I'm sure people listened. And if you remember, he speaks in the days of Josiah. What happened in the days of Josiah? You remember, there was a great revival in Israel. And I think that revival, that revival didn't last very long. It lasted just for the few years Josiah was king. And then they went back, right back to their wicked ways. Uh, but uh, there was a revival. And so maybe at this point, Zephaniah did have the ear of a few people. Uh, but again, that, that revival was pretty much superficial and didn't last long. And so I don't think many people listened to him. And I, again, God gave them the revival. He gave them this light, gave him a good king. It was like he was giving them this last chance to, to turn and repent. And they didn't listen. And so this final word goes out, repent or else. And uh, it's a pretty bleak prophecy, the first two chapters. But Zephaniah, to me, when you get to chapter 3, is one of the most exciting prophecies in the Bible. It's a lot like Zechariah. It's about the, the millennial kingdom and what, what, how good, well good things are going to be for Israel and the whole world when Christ comes to rule. And so, so, so all of these books end with a hope. They start with judgment and they end with a hope. And so uh, a great hope for, for Israel and a great hope for the rest of the world. So... Let's go, well, we went to verse number one. Let's go to verse number two. Verse number two. I will utterly, now, where he's, let me tell you where he's going to be at now. He's fixing ahead into a prophecy about the great tribulation, the day of the Lord. Zephaniah uses the day of the Lord, I think, five times in this little three-chapter prophecy. And we know what the day of the Lord is. Remember, the day of the Lord is the day that begins with what? It begins with the rapture of the church. Then comes the great tribulation. Then comes the millennium. Then comes uh, eternity. And so all of that is encompassed in the day of the Lord. And so the day of the Lord is, begins with the rapture and it ends in forever. 
And so it's the day when the Lord takes charge of the things of this earth and he becomes the king over the affairs of man. And, and it, it starts with a rapture and it starts with him withdrawing himself, but it ends with him on the throne uh, forever and ever and ever. And uh, listen to what he says. You think Hurricane Harvey was bad. Look at verse number one. I will, now this is God speaking. This is the same Jesus, God, who is Jesus in the New Testament. And he says, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will consume men and beasts. I will consume the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. And I will cut off men, now he's talking about wicked men, from the face of the land forever, says the Lord. Now that's a bad, you know, pretty scary prophecy, but it has some hope in it too, in that the wicked are going to be cut off forever. Now, we saw, all of you I'm sure watch C, hopefully you didn't watch CNN, but maybe you watched Fox News during this, this terrible tragedy in Houston, and and, and, and it, man, it looks like the city almost got wiped out. There were some scenes there that people kept saying they're apocalyptic. It was an apocalyptic scene, one after the other. It's amazing how we forget this after a couple of weeks and it goes off the news. But I imagine if you drove over there, over there now, it would still look pretty bad. But that is nothing, nothing compared to what's going to happen in the Great Tribulation. And that's why I, when we were talking about the introduction to Revelation, and I was telling you, those who have... Uh, a preterist belief that all of these things happened in the first century. I don't think they've really read that book very seriously because, because the things that happen in the book of Revelation, picking up in chapter 4 through uh, chapter 19, are terrible, terrible, terrible things worse than, you know, a thousand times worse than Harvey. And they don't just happen in Houston, they happen all over the world. But you do get a little bit of a taste of how bad things are going are gonna to be in the Great Tribulation when you see a disaster like Harvey, but it, it's nothing compared to, to, to what's going to happen uh, when the great tribulation begins. Now, he leaves the great tribulation and the great, he goes to the Babylonian captivity in the next part of his prophecy, which is a foreshadowing shadowing of the great tribulation. So it's, it's, uh, uh, Similar, but again, not as bad as the Great Tribulation, but it was pretty bad for Israel. I mean, Israel got wiped out. There was a remnant that was saved, and that was it. But, but you read some of the stories. If you ever get a chance, go read some of the accounts uh, that Josephus recorded about the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity, and it was terrible, the things that went on during this time. I mean, it was like the Great Tribulation is going to be. But listen to what he says in verse number 4. He says, I will... Stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off every trace of Baal from, from this place. The names of the idolaters priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heavens on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom or Molech, those who have turned their turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Now here you have this picture of Israel being totally destroyed 
And God gives the main reason why right here in these few verses. What was it? It was idolatry. And, and idolatry starts when you forget the Lord. When you forget the Lord, men are going to worship something. So whenever they forget the Lord, when, when, when people forget the Lord, they worship something. It might be things. It might be sports. It might be themselves. But they're going to worship something. And, and in that, at some point, that morphs into worshiping some sort of pagan idol. And that was the main reason that the judgment of Israel took place, because of their unbelief because they neglected their relationship with the Lord. And, and listen to what he says in verse number 6, going back to verse number 6. He says, you have turned your back on me. You know, you have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Why? Because men love darkness more than they love light. Most people, and a lot of people who call themselves Christians, really don't like the Lord. They don't like the Lord you see in Zephaniah. They like the Lord of their own making, the Jesus of their own making. And that's what Baal was. Baal was Yahweh worship, but Baal was the, the creation in the minds of the Israelites of their God, of a God of their liking. They considered him Jehovah God. But he was nothing more than a pagan god. And they, so they ended up making these statues to Baal and, and uh, incorporating the Babylonian Baal and, and uh, uh, into their worship. And, and, you know, if you had asked them, or, do you believe in Jehovah? Oh, yeah. We're, you know, they wouldn't have said they were Christians in that day. But if, it was, if they were modern day, in, in a modern-day situation, that's, it would have been like people saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. Certainly I'm a Christian. Do you believe maybe that God has something to do with Harvey? Oh, no. No, 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 no. No. With God is all about health and wealth and prosperity. And, and uh, God is about those things. But that's not the only thing he's about. And so uh, uh, the Lord rebukes them for this. I mean, he, he, he names their, their, their gods that they worship. I mean, they're worshiping. Uh, Molech, the god of pleasure. They're working Baal, this god of their own creation. And they're working, worshiping the stars. And so uh, uh, when the Babylonians came down, I bet you they got serious about their relationship with Jehovah God. But it was too late. And the reason it was too late because when they wanted to worship the Lord or call upon the Lord, at that point, Zephaniah, the Lord had hid himself. And he had hid himself because God wants us to want him, not just want pleasure, not just to want comfort, not just to get out of trouble. He wants us to want him. And the only reason at that point they called upon him because they wanted to get out of trouble. And if he had gotten them out of trouble, he had done this over and over again. Read the book of Judges. Read the book of Kings. Read the book of Chronicles. He had done this over and over and over and over again throughout their whole history. You know, they, had, they, had, they begged the Lord to help them because they were in trouble. The Lord would help them. And then, and then they'd go back to their evil ways as soon as they were comfortable again. And so God had drawn the line. And Zephaniah, now the Lord has hid himself. And he's not going uh, to come to their aid. And so the Lord says elsewhere in the Scripture, call on your pagan gods. 
Call on your wooden idols. Call on your stone idols and see if they'll help you. Those idols that can't speak, those idols that can't uh, <clears throat> do anything for you. And so these, they, the Israelites at this point are in really, really serious trouble. And you know what? If they were really ready to repent and call upon the Lord at this point, God would have pulled back on this judgment. But he knew their hearts. He knew they weren't ready to do that. And so he hides himself from them. Now, verse number 7, when that happens, when God hides himself, when people are in trouble, and God, people start saying, hey, where is God in all of this? I mean, we don't want God in our lives, but when something like Harvey hits Houston, we say, where is God in all of this? We don't want God in our politics. We don't want God in our nation. We don't want God in our personal lives. But then something like this happens, and, and we say, where is God in all of this? And I'm sure when the Babylonians attacked the Israelites, and they saw those armies marching towards them, and they laid siege to Jerusalem, and people were starving to death. They said, where is God in all of this? Well, God had hidden himself. But let me tell you what God's response is to that type of criticism. Look at verse number 7. Be silent in the presence of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, and he invited his guest. That sounds pretty rough right there. What's God's answer to, to, to those critics who say, where is God, or why isn't God doing something about this? What about God, in God, God of love? His answer is, hush, shut up. You, you don't question what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. And what's he doing? He's always working out good. His judgment is his mercy. His judgment is his love. His judgment is his justice and his righteousness. And so all of those things are good. When he judges the wicked, that is a good thing. There are times when I cry out, Lord, like a back of, how long are you going to allow this wickedness in this world, in this country, in the United States of America to go on? Lord, when are you going to stop it? Then when he starts stopping it, oh, wait, Lord, you know, that's a little rough right there. Uh, but it's good. God is doing good. And, and, and whenever God judges the wicked, we suffer with them. The righteous suffer with the wicked on that. But we're going to see, Zephaniah is going to talk in chapter 2 about how the Lord knows how to hide his people in the time of judgment. And so in chapter 2 or chapter 3, somewhere along that line, we'll see that here coming up. So he says, be silent. In the presence of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Here's another reference to the day of the Lord. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice as he has invited his, his guests. And you might want to say, guess who's coming to dinner? Uh, better still, guess who's going to be dinner? The wicked are going to be dinner. He's prepared a sacrifice of judgment, and guess who the sacrifice is? People. Wicked people of the sacrifice. He was saying to the Israelites, hey, hey, God's prepared a sacrifice and guess what? You're it. You're it. 
and it shall be and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. All those who have clothed themselves in luxury at the expense of, of, of the poor by oppressing others, cheating others, uh, uh, they're going to be a sacrifice. They're going to be sacrificed to the Babylonians in this judgment of Israel. Look at verse number 9. In the same day I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, all those who jump out of bed in the morning and hoping to, to cheat somebody, to, to beat somebody out of money, to steal, some, to steal from somebody. Those who do that, he said, who fill their master's houses, who, who do it for their bosses with violence and deceit. In other words, they're, they're going to be part of that sacrifice. Then verse number 10. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a more, more mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crashing from the hills. The first thing they're going to hear is this loud crashing coming from the hills, the sound of thunder coming from the hills, and that's going to be the Babylonian armies coming to, to, to siege, lay siege to Israel. And then they're going to all go inside the gates at the north gate. The north gate is the, the uh, gate of Damascus today. And uh, then it says a wailing will come from the second quarter inside the, the, uh, the, uh, inside the, gate, the walls of Jerusalem is the second quarter, which, is, which would be like a uh, shelter where people come out of, the, out, of the, out of the countryside and come into Jerusalem and they shelter there. And there in that, in, in that second quarter is a market they called Maktesh. And so look what he says in verse number 11. Well, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. In other words, these people are going to retreat into the city. And they're going to go into the second quarter where they, they're going to hopefully wait out this Babylonian siege, but it's not going to work. They're going to eventually breach the walls. And all those market people in there that are selling goods to the to the to the refugees are gonna they're gonna go down too. There's not gonna be anything to eat. There's not gonna be anything to 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 drink, and and they're gonna be slaughtered. And so uh, he says in verse number twelve, and it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. What's he searching for? People to be sacrificed. People not sacrificed. On altars, but I'm talking about sacrifice to, to 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 the Lord because of their wickedness, and and the Babylonians are going to search them out. But really, it's going to be the Lord who's searching them out. It's like going into every nook and corner looking for anybody that's hiding, uh, so that they can be punished, slaughtered, and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, "The Lord will not do good." nor will he do evil. You know, that statement describes the way a lot of so-called Christians in the United States treat the Lord today or the, the way they feel about the Lord today. That the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. They don't see the Lord, evil not God can't do anything that's evil. But evil to us and what's evil to the Lord 
are different. The Lord is good, so he's always doing good. God is love, and so he's always doing, showing love. God is just and righteous, so he's going to always be bringing forth his justice and his righteousness. And so you've got to balance all those things together, and what might seem evil to us is righteous to God and just in God's eyes. Actually, the wages of sin is death. God made that clear to mankind from the very beginning. So God has the moral right, and it's not evil, if he wants to destroy every human being on the face of this earth, me and you included. And so if God wants to go wipe out a city, he can wipe out a city, and that might seem evil to you, but that's not evil to God. If he, wants to, if he has reasons for wiping it out, I guarantee you it's good reasons. But a lot of people get this idea, they live life with this deistic view of the Lord that God is somehow up in heaven and, and uh, he's not involved in the affairs of this earth. And so when good things happen, we don't give credit to God. And when bad things happen, we blame it on global warming or we blame it on some uh, natural phenomenon, some uh, uh, act of Mother Nature. We like to use those terms. There's no such thing as Mother Nature, I hate to tell you. If you believe that, you're in the wrong place because there's no such thing as Mother Nature. Nature is God's nature. It operates under the sovereignty of Almighty God. And so all these laws and all of these, these uh, storms, everything that happens in, in, in our universe comes under the authority of God. And so God can stop it. He can allow it to happen. He can make it happen. And so when you say God doesn't cause these evils, it's really just as bad as what we are calling evil. God doesn't cause disasters and tragedies. Then, then it's just as bad to the Lord as saying, you know, the Lord's not in the good things that happen. Now, a lot of people see the Lord in the good things that happen, but they don't see him in the bad things that happen. He's in everything that happens, especially for a child of God. I mean, there's nothing that happens in my life that I don't, as a believer, and you might not believe this way, but, I, but I've proven this out for the last 27 years, that God hasn't allowed in my life. I believe Romans 8, 28 with all my heart when I like what's happening. There are times when I don't like what's happening, and I say, Lord, you say this is good, but this is not good. I don't like this. But I still give God credit for it because I still believe God is in it, and I still believe deep down inside theologically, not with my feelings or my emotions, but I feel deep th down theologically, I believe that it's going to work out for my good. And you know what? When I look back, everything has worked out for my good that God's done in my life since that, and really back before I was even saved. It's all worked out for my good. All of it. It's been unpleasant at times. And I wouldn't have called it good, but God called it good. And so... It's a real wise awakening 
for a person to come to the point where they really look for God in all their circumstances. And they give God the keys of their heart and the keys of their life. And we allow God to do what he wants to do with our lives and help us with all our decisions because we believe he's there and he wants what's best for us. I mean, I don't think as a born-again believer we should make any decisions that we don't give to the Lord, any. Well, what about the small ones? Well, the small ones turn into big ones real quickly if you're not careful. We, we, we allow God to, to stop anything we're doing or to open any door he wants to open for us. I mean, look, look back at verse number six again. And he's rebuking the, the Israelites because they have turned their back from following the Lord and have not sought him nor acquired of him. Because they don't think God's in all of these things, the good and the, what we see as evil, still good with God. Because they think that, they don't inquire of the Lord. They don't seek the Lord. And that really reeks of unbelief. And where, where does unbelief t- take you? It takes you into idolatry, and you end up worshiping a God other than the God of the Bible, other than the true and living God, Jehovah God, other than Jesus Christ. And i got to tell you, our country is replete with people in that boat. They do their own things. They do it their way. And that's unbelief, and that leads to idolatry, and God is who they want to make him to be. He's not the God that Zephaniah talks about. In fact, they will tell you that that's Old Testament. What we're studying here is Old Testament, and the God of the New Testament is different from the God of the Old Testament. Well, I would like for you to show me a verse that that, uh, makes that case, because there's not one. They're both the same. Hear, O Israel, your God is one God. One God. He's Jehovah God. And he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he goes on. And he says, Therefore the, their goods shall become booty, and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. Now, this is a repeating theme in the Minor Prophets. This idea that it's, it's really what Solomon, the case Solomon makes in the book of Ecclesiastes. That if all you live is for things and you forsake God, one day all those things are going to be consumed by somebody other than you. And that's the theme here. All this work that they're doing and all this wickedness that they're doing in order to, 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 to live in the lap of luxury, one day somebody else is going to enjoy it, not them. Then in, we finish up in, in verses 14 and 15. It says, the great day of the Lord is near. Well, I think I, that's a refrigerator magnet verse right there. Because the great day of the Lord is near. It is near. Very near. It is near and hastens quickly. It's a bad day. It starts out as a bad day. Amos says, woe to him, those who desire the day of the Lord. 
Peter says, on the other hand, in, in 2 Peter, we're to, we're to long for the day of the Lord. Well, we're to, we long for the day when Jesus rules and reigns on this earth. We don't long for the great tribulation. There's something wrong with you if you long for the great tribulation. I mean, I long for the rapture, but I got I to gotta temper that with the fact that that's going to be followed immediately by the great tribulation. And that's going to be rough. I mean, like I said, Harvey and, and Irma are nothing compared to the great tribulation. And we want to see people saved. And so, so yeah, we long for the, the day of the Lord, the part where we're raptured out of here and where Jesus Christ rules and reigns. But we certainly don't long for the great tribulation because the, and this is the part of the day of the Lord that he's speaking of here in verse 14 and 15. He says, the great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty man shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, the wrath of God, a day of trouble and distress like this earth has never seen, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. You know all about high towers that come down. I will bring distress upon man and they will walk like blind men. It's going to hit them so hard. They're not going to know where to turn because they have sinned against the Lord. What's the sin against the Lord that brings mankind down? Unbelief. That's the sin. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. I see all of these commercials, especially if you watch the conservative networks, and there's all these commercials to buy gold, you know, get ready for the, the trouble that's coming, just buy gold. Let me tell you what, a, a handful of gold won't buy you a loaf of bread in the Great Tribulation. That's how bad things are going to be and how worthless gold and silver are going to be. They're going to be absolutely worthless. Neither their silver nor their gold should be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. Man, that sounds like a temper tantrum. No. The Lord's warning. He's warning our nation right now. He's warning the nations of this world. There's some bad, bad things on the horizon. And the warning shots are going on death ears for the most part. But he's warning us. And why will it, the land be devoured? Because of his jealousy? I mean, who is he to be jealous? Well, let me tell you who he is. He's our creator. This earth is not yours or mine. It will be because we're, gonna, we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. But this is his place. And as a nation and as a world, we've tried to kick him out of his own place. And he, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. He came to back to his creation 
and died for his creation because of his love. And he's jealous. He's jealous in the fact that we've forsaken him and rejected the gift of his salvation. He has every right to be mad. He has every right to be jealous. And he will make a speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. All means what in the Hebrew? All. All but a remnant. Thank goodness there's, a, there's some exception there. You know, I go back to verse number two, and the Lord says, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land. You know, I've always kind of pondered, I haven't always, but at times I've pondered what this earth is going to be like after the great tribulation. It's going to be a wonderful place. I mean, I wonder if we're going to have cars, for example. I wonder if we're going to have skyscrapers, for example, roads, highways. I mean, how is it all going to operate? You know, you read these passages that we'll see even as we finish up in the minor prophets. And there's a day coming, especially you go over to the major prophets too. There's a day coming when everybody will go up to Jerusalem to see the Lord. Now, how, how we can do that on horses, I don't know. So there's got to be some kind, of, some kind of transportation system. But you ponder all these things and you wonder... If it's going to be like it is now, it's going to be different. Well, it's going to be different because the Lord is going to utterly remove all the wicked from this land and he's going to wipe the face of the earth clean. And all you got to do is look at what happened in Houston. You can see that, you know, just a little storm in God's eyes like that. He can, he can clean things up. You, you saw what happened in that tsunami a few years back. He can clean things up really fast. And... Paradise won't be restored at that point. That won't happen until the end of the millennium, but it will begin to be restored. And I think it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful, one. I know it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful place to be. When the wicked are gone and the King of kings and Lord of lords rules on this earth. So when you see things going on in our country, remember God is God of love, and he loves everybody in this country. But he's also a just God, and he's also a jealous God, and he's also a God of wrath, not a God of temper tantrums, but a God who exercises judgment. And in the end, it's going to be for good, for really, really, really good, good, good things. Yeah, that's a Donald Trump line, but I didn't mean, I didn't mean to use it. But uh, it's going to be, this is really going to be good, I can tell you right now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the hope that we have. Even in the midst of judgment, Lord, you show your mercy and your love. 
Father, we just ask that, uh, uh, Lord, that, that uh, you give us the courage and strength to go on serving you as things get more and more difficult, as this world becomes more and more Christ-rejecting. Lord, we just ask for the power and the grace to, to, to be able to live the kind of lives and speak the kind of words that you would have us speak before a lost and dying world. Father, we want to see as many people saved as possible before that rapture comes, before that great tribulation comes, because, Lord, we see just a taste of it here in, this, in these disasters in the United States, and then we see the reality of it in, in this passage in Zephaniah and elsewhere in your word, and it's going to be a terrible, 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 terrible time, Lord. We don't want anyone we know to go through that time. So help us to get serious about our faith, Lord. Help us to get serious about our service and serious about our relationship to you. We can only do that by the power of your Holy Spirit through the love of Jesus Christ. In his precious name that I pray. Amen.